Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, or rather today, because I think I recorded a, another episode earlier in the week with Dan Freed, I'm joined by a, a good friend of mine and also a colleague in my other professional incarnation, Rashal Kidi, who is a senior analyst at New Lines Institute, which is affiliated and I suppose the parent organization of New Lines Magazine, where I'm director of news. Uh, Rasha is one of my favorite people covering and watching the Middle East. She is a fiery Mosulawi, if I may say so myself, very outspoken in her <laughs> opinions and pushes back against a lot of, especially DC born conventional wisdom when it comes to the Middle East, US foreign policy and much else. Uh, Rasha, it's great to have you on. Uh, we tried to record this. I should let everyone know many months ago. And I don't know, it didn't work out. I think I was in a bad mood and depressed and and so were you. And <laughs> yeah, <I> <laughs> hopefully yeah. this will be a more, a more lively and spirited conversation. Yeah. A lot was going on a few months ago. So <laughs> yeah. But one, one of the things I wanted to, to query you on is the, uh, the most recent I- Iraqi elections. So obviously you've been covering this, you have a forthcoming report at New Lines Institute on this. Can you tell us for, for the lay observer of Iraqi politics, what transpired? How were certain expectations upended or challenged? And what does the result mean for, let's start with U.S. policy toward Iraq, and then we can kind of zoom out a bit in terms of the broader American approach to the region, which is now undergoing a bit of a rethink, to say the least. Well, first of all, there was a huge boycotting. So the electoral turnout was not so great, but it was not as bad as it could have. I personally was anticipating perhaps a 30% turnout. Mm -hmm. So the official number was around 41, which again, it wasn't, wasn't so bad, especially given how many people were boycotting. And the people who boycotted were the ones who were, were disillusioned with the political process in Iraq as a whole. Many of them were like the pro-protest movement that they thought any participation elections would validate the system that they stand against. Um, But despite that, the um, electoral results came in, the the results came in quite different than anticipated in some aspects. The biggest, the the, the winner, the major winner was Muqtada Sadr. That was not so surprising. Mm -hmm. Muqtada has had the majority of the votes for some time now. His followers are, let's just say, very loyal. And despite his theatrics a few months ago when he announced that he was withdrawing completely and thousands of his followers actually burnt their election cards, he, he you know, walked back on his decision as we all knew he would. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just enjoys being in the spotlight. He's very dramatic in that sense. Now, this is for, for those who aren't well versed in, in the, the vagaries of not just Iraqi politics, but also the U.S. war and occupation. And Muqtada al-Sadr was a he is. I mean, he's a, a Shia politician, but also kind of a warlord or the commander of a of notorious militia that at various intervals fought against the United States when we were there. But he's he's an enigmatic and interesting figure in that I leave it to you to explain this, right? I mean, in U.S. sort of policymaking and analytical circles, the question is, you know, is he more of a nationalist than he is an exponent of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps and Iranian yeah. hegemony in Iraq? What is the sort of game that he's playing? So the biggest issue with Muqtada in the United States is that Muqtada has long been overtly against, first of all, the U.S. occupation and U.S. presence, Mm -hmm. military presence as well, and just U.S. interference in general. He is, in that sense, part of that sense of muqawama or resistance, but not not within Iran's orbit. This is the main difference. It was Muqtada's militias and armed men that actually were responsible for the vast majority of U.S. deaths. 
between 2003 and 2011. Later, many of them ended up joining the more radical groups that later Muqtada himself and the Sadrist movement disowned completely, and they ended up becoming just like Asa'ad al-Haq and Qatar Hezbollah. Nonetheless, Muqtada Sadr has not opposed diplomatic relations with the United States. So in his recent statements, for example, he encouraged foreign embassies, all foreign embassies to remain open and, and denounced the rocket and missile attacks against these embassies, pointing out at these resistance militias. The problem with Muqtada, I think, not just with U.S. policy towards him, even the Iraqis, is he's unpredictable. It's hard to predict even forthcoming where his alliance is going to be. He might align himself with anyone and just sort of shock the entire not system, but just shock everyone who voted for him. This is the problem with Muqtada. When someone is not reliable in this sense, when you can't predict him, when you don't know where he's going to go, it's problematic. And this is one of the reasons why, despite consistently winning in the elections, always having the largest bloc in the parliament, there's never been a prime minister from the Sadrist movement. I personally think this is where Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who, for listeners, is the highest Shia religious authority in the country, He's not a politician. He does not interfere in politics straightforward, mm-hmm. but he has a say in certain things. He can lobby certain things. And out of this fear, I think I believe that he personally has played a role in the past 15, 16 years since Iraqis have been ele- electing parliament members and government uh, later on formed from these elections is that a prime minister cannot be a Sadrist because Muqtada himself is a bit out of control. That's why he kind of earned the title firebrand. Yeah. Muqtada did win uh, big in these elections. He got the majority of the seats. Here's the twist. For one certain, for one block, he got the majority. However, the highest number of Iraqis, about 1,700,000 something, voted for independent candidates. This is unprecedented. That that number, which is the highest number, voted for candidates who are who so far, I think with, except, with an exception of one or two who have recently joined the Sadrist bloc, that they voted for individuals who are not backed by parties, officially not backed by parties, but they were obviously popular enough in their own communities to get enough votes to win parliament seats. That was significant. And is there a, a generational aspect to this in, in addition to, I mean, whatever you can call it, ideological? I mean, are, the, are there younger politicians coming into the fore now that were around 15, 16 years ago? Yeah, so from the independents, I have not, to be honest, I have not um, broken down exactly where, how old they are, or just, you know, the demographic of it um, yet. But um, there definitely is a younger generation. But you also have to keep in mind that Iraqis have been electing for 16 years now. So someone who is 20 when in the U.S. invasion is, or when the first elections happened is now 36. So there's always that aspect of it. But for these, for the independents, I don't think it was the age factor. I think these were also former politicians or, or people who belonged to certain blocs previously, but just grew disillusioned with the political process. So they decided to run as independents. So they were they gained the highest number of votes, but that's not going to necessarily translate into a strong bloc because we don't know how they're going to distribute themselves or align themselves with so far. Yeah. Uh, so and then um, the comeback kid or comeback criminal, as I'm calling him, is Nuri Maliki, former prime minister. Nuri Maliki is obviously responsible for a lot of the carnage that happened. It was during his term that one one third of the country fell to the Islamic State. Before that, he was the one who really redirected the country and reinstigated the sectarian rhetoric and made it so mainstream that though it didn't translate to a civil war, but it was very common for people to call on the complete eradication of entire cities and leveling them with the ground if they were from a different sect. 
Maliki made that quite mainstream. The Iraqi media, the official public Iraqi media at the time, adopted the most sectarian tone it has ever. And um, had it not been for U.S. pressure, I believe under it was under the Obama administration when they, though it was that administration, ironically, that really elevated Maliki, that he cannot possibly have a third term despite winning in the elections in 2014 because one third of the city was under the Islamic State. And it, it was that pressure that actually boosted him out and uh, gave way for Prime Minister Haider Labadi to, you know, to take control. Uh, Nouri Maliki came in also with a significant number of votes. I believe he managed to sweep away many of the votes, votes that could have gone, that should have gone to the political wing of the Popular Mobilization Forces, which is called al Fatah Bloc. And the Popular Mobilization Forces, as we know, is an umbrella of militias. Uh, many of them were part of Muqtada's Jaysh al-Mahdi pre-2007. Then they became so radical. They were involved in mass killings of civilians, of Sunni civilians, in the thousands that Muqtada had to denounce them. And many of them fled to Iran. And then Nuri Maliki at the time, who was also prime minister, actually chased them down and killed and arrested many of them. But as Iraq gradually fell to ISIS uh, with the organization and orchestrating of uh, then General Qasem Soleimani, Nuri Maliki and militia warlord Hadi al-Amari, popular mobilization forces came to life. They pinned it on the fatwa, on Sistani's fatwa, though we all know by now that was a misinterpretation and it was definitely misguided. So they have a political wing after they managed to be an official part of the security security apparatus, they lost many seats. Now, they didn't do miserable. They still won, but they had come in third place the last elections. This time, they were down to the sixth or seventh place, I believe. And in many of their strongholds in southern Iraq, they lost. So if that's an indication of everything, and I would really like to stress this point, and I feel comfortable saying it on your podcast more than other places, if we look back at the analysis over the past three or four years, when it comes to talking about the popular mobilization forces. What have we read? They're legitimate. They have a fan base. Iraqis love them. They're viewed as national heroes. And this is at like respectful outlets by respectful journalists. The elections proved the opposite. And this is what everyone in Iraq had been saying and what the October protest also proved. But it just didn't seem to be enough for the DC circles and the circles in London and elsewhere that have really been pushing for this normalization of the popular mobilization forces. And I don't, when I say the the PMF, I don't mean every single unit. I mean specifically the violent ones, the ones accused of human rights violations and um, accused of of sectarian massacres against the populations that were controlled by ISIS for a while. This proves the opposite, that they're not popular, where in particular, in South Iraq. Well, also, I mean, you were one of the most outspoken and I think singular uh, observers of Iraq pointing out in real time when there was a mass protest movement being led by Iraqi Shia, the people putting them down were these militia groups, right? Committing atrocities. So this is not, I mean, this doesn't even, we don't even get into the sectarian quotient of it. This is just a a bunch of thugs and death squads who who now have political purchase and legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And who I might add, by the way, I mean, we've got two of them, the Hezbollah Brigades and also the League of the Righteous, I believe both are designated as terrorist entities by the United States, which is rather awkward in terms of any kind of diplomatic wrangling with these guys in the cabinet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I think that was one concern was that um, before the elections is that if these groups were to win large, it would put the United States in a, in a really awkward position that the next prime minister could possibly be from this group that the U.S. under the Trump administration, I believe, were designated these groups that under the Trump administration were designated as terrorist groups. 
And that did not happen. Apparently, another thing is that these groups, they have no integrity. If they want to win elections, they will do what they can to win them. And apparently, for some reason, they could not. They could not forge election you know, results. They could not change the results. Now, they're complaining and they're still protesting. And some of their protests have been violent, although it's been highly ridiculed and mocked around the country as not being significant. And they've threatened some some members have, you know, really been feisty lately. And they've made implicit death threats to even the state itself, that we kind of we're going to stage a coup, we're going to take over if these results don't change. No one is really taking them seriously. That was a bit of a surprise that they lost so many seats. The Kurdish parties uh, did more or less the same. But what was really significant this time, and I think also a bit surprising for people who observe Kurdish affairs in Iraq, that the winning party was actually Barzani's KDP, Kurdish Democratic Party. On the streets, if you past several years, just talking to regular Kurds, there has been a really de- a decrease in the popularity of the mainstream parties. Uh, the PUK, the, po- the party is like the Union, Kurdistan Union's party and the KDP, because mostly of their inability to confront Turkey on its many aggressions in, these, in, in North Iraq. Barzani in particular, the KDP, they have strong ties with Turkey. And one would assume that would translate that frustration and discontent would translate in the electorals and the election results. That didn't happen. The PUK is no longer like it, you know, at heads with the KDP. They lost many seats. The KDP actually kind of took over. So they have the majority of the votes. Well, I, I want to ask you um, just to, to zoom in a little bit on that. So the PUK, I think, was broadly blamed by Iraqi Kurds for the fall of Kirkuk to what was then billed as the central government of Baghdad. But as we all know, Qasem Soleimani led militias yes. were kind of leading yes. that, that fight. And I mean, the, the Talibani clan really dropped. It was certainly the, the KDP were making that, that their, their, their yes. principal argument that this is all the fault of, of the crooked uh, Talibanis, uh, including what's his name, the son yeah. of Jalal, who the, the rumor was that Qasem Soleimani, like in classic Godfather yes. style, is like either your brains or your signature is going to be on the contract if you don't let yeah. me do this, right? So it, did that play a role in PUK's fall from glory? It, it could have, but we keep to keep in mind that happened uh, four years ago. And I think the discontent was mostly about, it was mostly about unemployment mm. and mostly about like economic conditions. There's also a crackdown on free speech. Uh, now, Suleimania, the area under the PUK control, unofficially under the PUK control, it definitely has more freedom of speech than Erbil and Tok, yeah. the areas under the KDP control. That's, that's undisputed. But because of that, I think when there was sort of a crackdown in Suleimania, the population there were angrier. It's sort of kind of like the areas under the KDP are kind of accustomed to not having so much free speech. That could have been one thing. As for the, the other reasons, it's really hard to tell. What I, I'm not aware that there was a massive boycott of the elections either in, in, in the KRG. So what's so significant about the Kurds, about the Kurdish uh, election results, is that these differences between the votes, between like the KDP having the majority the PUK having about a quarter, I think, or a third, um, it would be significant if these were KRG, Kurdistan region, the region of Iraq's parliament elections. That would be significant. Then you would see the power. When it comes to Baghdad, they're united. They have one cause. Right. So they will, they will kind of drop their differences when it comes to Baghdad and present themselves as you know, one block. So they, they won significantly as well. I mean, they did relatively well. Have they, the same way they've been doing for the past 16 years when they unite. The other uh, 
not so shocking result, but a kind of new phenomenon in Iraqi politics is that Sunni politics, Sunni identity politics is almost no more. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's a bit problematic because the individual who has, who now, you know, leads the helm of Sunni politics is quite a controversial character. And his name is Hamad al-Halbusi. Halbusi is originally from Anbar province. He's highly, widely credited for the reconstruction of, of Anbar province, which is by far ahead than Ninawa province in the post-ISIS era. There are corruption accusations, of course, as there are with all Iraqi politicians, but he's also someone who has no problem with the militias, with the P- PMF. He's never been on their blacklist. He actually aligned with them temporarily uh, at some point in the past few years. Uh, it could be a form of diplomacy, but what he has done is he's really defeated the identity Sunnis, whether it's the, the Islamic Party of Iraq, which are the Muslim Brotherhood, basically equivalent in, in the country. And he's also defeated even the Nujafi clan, which were the uh, civic Muslim Sunni identity sort of politicians from Ninawa province. Yeah. He won huge in Ninawa as well. And he did that by cultivating a block of some of the most well-known, respectful, respected intellectuals in the city including the head, the former, the former dean of the, Med- of the College of Medicine, a very well-known personality that the city admires. Uh, he cultivated all these. And he, they joined his block and they did very, very well. So he's the face now of Sunni politicians. And it's also hard to know where he's going to align. Will he align with the PMF? He did it before. Yeah. Don't you kind of have to, I mean, engage with if the PMF is now a force to be reckoned with, albeit one that's greatly diminished, as you point out, electorally. But I mean, is this not a matter of just survival? Like you don't want to be assassinated by these guys. You also don't want them. It could be. Yeah, it it absolutely could be that. And that was my point where he's a controversial character, but it could be also a form of diplomacy. Mm. It's important also to say that, again, the analysis and writing over the past decade or so has pinned everything on the Sunnis and Sunni rejectionism. I believe that they're, they've become the most realistic uh, when it comes to voting. They know the limits of their leverage. They know that their towns are destructive. They know their politicians are weak. So perhaps this is one of the reasons they rallied around this person who they know is not going to give fiery statements, you know, against like versus 10 years ago against Shia, against Maliki that, that they cannot really live up to. So that has changed also. I believe it's a level of maturity. It's just perhaps not the best politician because, again, corruption is, is a huge deal in Iraq. And honestly, unless that's solved, nothing in the country is going to change. And it appears that the vanguards of corruption in the country have all secured their seats. So this is also where the problem lies. Perhaps the, the one positive surprise in the, in the elections was the another, not independent block, but another new, a new block that was formed after the October protest. And it came from the midst of the protesters. They realized at some point they were very much against the system, against the parliament, against how everything was arranged, but they could not defeat it. They could not take down the system. So the best way is to become an opposition within the system. And they did actually great. I mean, they won a total of, I believe, 13 seats, 12 or 13 seats. And it's possible that many of the independents who won could join them. So we're looking at expected 25 to 30 seats, which is not a huge number out of 300, but um, nearly 300. But it's still it's still the first time in 16 years since there have been parliament elections in Iraq that there's an opposition. There's a group of people that are against the system. Now, there's a possibility that they might be absorbed by other alliances. That's that's a possibility. There's a security concern. They might be assassinated. We've seen this happen with 
other activists. The one thing that kind of stands out is where they won. They won in the deep Shiasau. They won huge in Karbala and in Najaf. And for Iraq observers, that speaks one, that, that translates to one word, and that's Sistani. So they are indirectly perhaps under his protection. So maybe assassinations and attacks, I, I believe, especially now a more weakened militias, they might be hesitant. Now, in my opinion, if Qasem Soleimani were still alive, he'd probably go for it. So this is, this is the next question I have. It's actually a two-part question. So what role do you think Soleimani's assassination has played in weakening both, I guess, the, the IRGC yoke mm. in Iraq, but also altering the landscape of Iraqi politics? In other words, like allowing, as you say, the, the rise of the first bona fide opposition force to the system itself to emerge. And then as, as a corollary of that, tell us a little bit about Abu Fadak, who is the new kind of kid on the block in terms of, uh, I mean, I, I guess not inheriting the full mantle of, of Suleimani, but definitely the, the the player in terms of managing militias, playing the role of sort of spy master stroke warlord. I mean, who, who is this guy and what do we need to know about him and his capability? It was really hard to assess exactly how Suleimani's absence would actually translate uh, when it comes to this election. I think we see now that his successor is just simply not as charismatic, not as influential. Even when he came to Baghdad post-elections, he didn't really succeed in changing anything. Um, what happened the next day was that was several of the militia leaders saying that they reject the elections and that was it. There was nothing solid from them. So apparently he does not have the same clout and as Qasem Soleimani did. So definitely we see that his absence has had an impact. As for the October block winning, I'm not sure if Suleimani's presence or absence would have affected that. They seem to be very determined. It appears that they had some level of, of protection from Grand Ayatollah, from Najaf itself, from the Marjaiya. And it's, it's hard to assess. I mean, I, I personally believe Suleimani probably would have attacked them. He was that confident. But you never know. There's always been some sort of hesitation to fully go against Najaf's will, at least at this level. Yes, there was there was the PMF. They yeah. were kind of they they usually you know there's some skimmerish you know conflict between them, but it's not as direct. Uh, so that's that's kind of an open question, like what would have happened. But certainly, it is quite refreshing, and it's a step forward towards some kind of level of maturity to see there was an opposition block. It's just that we don't know how they're going to move forward and how much they can actually achieve. It's def- it probably will have an impact in the coming elections. In the coming cycles, maybe four, eight or 12 years from now, when more people are encouraged to participate, when more people will vote, seeing that voting can actually have, have a good outcome. So it's definitely a step in the right direction. As for your question about Abu Fadak, I will say this, and I'm one of the few people in Washington, D.C. who say this. I genuinely don't know. I don't know enough to give a definition. He's a mysterious man. He kind of appeared out of nowhere. And he is, of course, very influential. I wouldn't say he replaced Qasem Soleimani, but He's definitely been a replacement for, let's say, Abu Mahdi Mohandas to some extent, the Iraqi leader who was assassinated alongside Soleimani, the second man of the PMF. He has a mysterious character in that he can sort of shift shape, if that makes sense. So you see him having a diplomatic edge. to him. When you speak to foreign diplomats, when you speak to, obviously, the United Nations, they will tell you he's very well-spoken and he's diplomatic and he's realistic. And this is why you see them engaging with him often, even though it drives the streets crazy as to why they're giving this militia leader such a huge platform and they're, why they're mainstream, main, mainstreaming him and normalizing relations with him. Um, on the other hand, he's still a warlord. 
So he's really mastered the hyper game, you know, the hybrid game, sorry, that he can kind of change from side to side. But in recent weeks, he hasn't been, he hasn't been as vocal. I think he's absorbing things. This is another characteristic about him that separates him from Faisal Khazali is that he's not very loud. Um, he takes his time to look into things before making statements. So he's not as reactionary. And perhaps that's actually more Persian than it is Iraqi, um, that he's, he's quite calm in that sense. So it's, he's someone to definitely observe and how, he'll, how he will react to the, to the forming of the government will be interesting. It doesn't seem like the United States really has a, a discernible Iraq policy. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really have a Syria policy either, as far as I can tell, apart from this sort of creeping normalization with Assad or the refusal to prevent others from normalizing with, with Assad. I mean, is this part of, would you say, and, and you live in the District of Confusion, I'm happily ensconced in Queens, New York, so I'm, I'm out of the game when it comes to what people are saying policy-wise, but is this just part of a, a broader trend that we're seeing, which is the uh, America is yeah. region exhausted, and this president in particular <laughs> wants nothing to fucking do with either the Middle East or Central Asia and wants to end these wars and sort of these conflicts. There's, everything is going to be over the horizon now, over the horizon counterterrorism, over the horizon diplomacy. What do you make of it? First of all, I'm really sorry I missed you in New York earlier this month. Uh, I knew that you were not there at the time, but I was there for nearly two weeks. And yeah, I mean, I don't blame you for hating Washington, (laughs) D.C. I I just, I know I should say, like, you know, there's people like yourself and there are my friends and, you know, and and I I enjoy visiting Washington, D.C. It's confusing. Yeah, I I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I have Stone, a man who I kind of respect but don't admire once said never let them buy you lunch because the, the minute they buy you lunch they own you and I always feel like you can't really be independent minded or you can't be on your honor living and working in DC because you have to perforce run into people that you just can't stand and who not, not just disagree with but you just know are slimy <laughs> miserable people well that's why that's why we call our institute new lines because we're different and we're new I'll just uh, I'll just like put that out yeah, but we're all friends with each other, too. So it's it's kind of like, you know, it's partisan lines. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's also true. So, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think that this administration is it's part of uh, sort of the disengagement foreign policy they have towards the region and also in, in a realization that they have very, very little leverage. There's very little the United States can actually do. Um, now, there are people in this administration who genuinely care about Iraq. I, I've spoken to them. I've seen them. They're honest. And it could be for various reasons, but they wish they could help. They just generally don't know how to. This level of compassion would have been great to see 10 years ago when the U.S. did have an actual impact and could actually shift things around and change things for the good, not in, in, in an interference what serves America, but what serves Iraq. And that didn't happen then because the agenda were, was, were very different. But today it's more that this is the limitations. This is what we can do. We know that we can't do anymore. It's different in Syria. Uh, also, the situation in Syria is obviously more complicated, definitely more violent. And the United States is also observing. I mean, it could turn violent in Iraq, too. We've seen the first few days, first few weeks post-elections, there's been this bickering between the Sadrists and the militias. You have who's going to control these armed groups now. That's a big question. Could it switch into another civil war? This time between Shia and Shia, could it also be after the ISIS attack in Diana this week, we saw an uptick in sectarian attacks and the sectarian rhetoric in the country, and even burning of some Sunni mosques in, in um, the Muqtadiyah, Diyala area. So uh, could we see it most likely carried out by the militias 
the Hezbollah Asaib and their affiliates, whom obviously are releasing stress and anger because of losing the elections, could they actually use that to escalate sectarian tensions in order to come make a political comeback or a security comeback? It's hard to tell. So all of these things the United States is still wary of. There are still 2,500 U.S. Uh, troops in the country, mostly for training purposes, but they are trying to get them home too at some point. Right. Uh, so the U.S. understands at this point it just can't do anything. And also it sees that it's observing, if you look at the election results also, with an exception to Nuri Maliki, who sadly always manages to sort of, you know, he, he managed, manages to create this own this own sort of clout for himself that doesn't really reflect the rest. But if we look at the biggest winners in these elections, none of them are part of the post-2003 system. None of them were part of the opposition that was in the United States and in the UK and other places in Europe in the 90s. The, the opposition against Saddam, yeah. the anti-Bath opposition. The biggest names that won were all Iraqis inside Iraq when the US army entered the country in 2003. So it's clear for the for the people voting that this disconnect between the diaspora born and bred government of Iraq that had been supported by, by the United States very generously over the years, the Ahmed Chalabis and the mini Ahmed Chalabis, but they failed. And so who can America actually go behind when it comes to locals? It doesn't want to, and also it doesn't know them. So it's leaving it more to like, okay, this is more of a domestic affair. I'm not going to intervene. You have the channels that the U.S. can help with or is, is perhaps more active, like USAID and other organizations, perhaps maybe some engagement with civil society, but beyond that, when it comes to politics, as long as there's no threat to American interests inside the country, especially now with the PMF block kind of losing, I think that's good enough. There was talk about the U.S. actually preferring the Sadrists because Muqtadad has not attacked the U.S. embassy for a very, very long time and has not attacked and, and his group. Um, they have not attacked um, any U.S. interests. That's also, I believe, quite short-sighted. We are still talking about someone who's hard to predict, who also very much has this massive impunity, who's the people, the politicians and officials that are part of his block are very, very corrupt. So if you're supporting that too, it's kind of problematic because it affects the people living in the country, even though it secures your own interests. It's been unclear. I think the U.S. is, is put a lot of its weight behind Prime Minister Kalbami just to get Iraq to the election safely without the country falling apart. Kalbami, to some extent, I would say succeeded in that mission. So the U.S. finds itself, okay, we could have been much worse off. So for now, we're good. Let's just see how things go. And there's just a lack of interest. Since Maliki left the, the premiership, it's been a succession of caretaker governments, right? Sort of stewards, but no leadership. Yes. And I mean, on the one hand, a lot of Americans might say, well, well, good. We don't want a strong Iraqi leader coming to the fore again because that'll either open the doorway for another ISIS or a civil war or whatever. But on the other hand, this is it's at odds with the earlier point you made, which is the kind of rise of political authenticity of native Iraqis, not the sort of diaspora mercenaries and hirelings who basically just collect American aid and steal it and, and you know, proclaim themselves or want to be king, kings of Iraq or whatever. So at what point, though, does Iraq sort of allow or can it be allowed to like a real political force to take shape such that we do see an independent minded, strong prime minister who has his own political block and it's not really being imposed or dictated by Washington or Tehran or anywhere else? Are you optimistic for the future of the country or are you pessimistic? It's, it's hard to tell because 
the way the Iraqi parliament has functioned over the past 16 years is basically a network of like intertwined interests. So it's people who win and later on they just distribute the spoils amongst themselves. That's how it's been. And they appear to fight and be at odds with each other in parliament. Once they step out, they go to the cafeteria, they're all good as long as they're getting paid, as long as they're not their constituents, as long as their direct friends and family are all employed, and as long as they're getting their share of the many economic investments. It, that's, that's a wide, it's like the worst kept secret in the country of how the parliament works. And when it's shaped that way, it's hard to change. So the newcomers in parliament, they're against this. This is why they protested. And their family members and, uh, were assassinated and their friends were assassinated. They died for this. But can they actually make a change with, when, let's say they win 30 seats with, with their alliances. Can they actually change this? It's, it's hard to tell. And I, I don't think they can achieve a lot of change. I mean, they might be able to perhaps modify or change some of the bills, especially like the, the social status bill, some more localized, a smaller, they can achieve reform on the, at, a, at a small scale, but they're not gonna be able to defeat corruption. Not when the biggest winners are all vanguards of corruption. That's the problem. So. Have, if they were to win more votes with international community, with the UN backing Iraq's elections, and I think that did actually play a role the past in these elections in, in securing at least to make it as safe and yeah. corruption-free as possible. If they continue, if the international community continues playing this role, maybe there could be a more significant change. Will Muqtada change his ways? Um, has he matured politically? Does he see that the his existence and his survival as a politician Although he's a cleric, he's never assumed any political role, but his political block, its survival and its success also depends on actually acting like the government, not acting as a force that consistently criticizes the system, which he does, though he's a part of this part of Muqtada's prerogative and being so contradictive. We'll have to wait and see. The direct impact of these elections on the ground in the country, I don't think that we're going to see them. We might see some changes in certain areas like in Anbar, where uh, Halbusi is very influential and he won big. The changes there are not necessarily positive. Um, we're going to see the reemergence of, of the sort of strongman character that people defend with their lives, uh, sort of in, in an almost same figure, even though he's not a dictator. But we will see that sort of cultish figure this time among Sunnis, even if they're non-identity Sunnis and not sectarian, but we will see the rise in that perhaps, like Maybe you had Qasem Soleimani or you had Nuri Maliki. Now we have Mohammed al-Halbusi. That's not a good look, but it's, a, it's just something I think the international community has accepted that Iraq is always going to be a mess and that Iraq is never going to get its right. you know, stuff together. And that's it. This is the reality of the situation. And what we can do is just hope for the, you know, the least of the worst outcomes. If that's the standard, then this is all good. This is all great. <laughs> it's a very diminished standard from what was yeah. being uh, propounded in 2003, 2004. Oh, exactly, yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, you take what you can get. What is the, uh, the, the threat posed by ISIS as an insurgency in Iraq still? Yeah, it's the, it's the same threat it has been since 2018. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in their attacks because obviously now they can. And it's also signaling, and it relates a lot to what happened in Afghanistan as well, is when the U.S., withdraws, we're going to escalate the situation. They're also very sectarian in nature. They're attacking Shia areas, but it's still in the underground sort of gang and thug hit and run attacks. So what they're doing is they recently, last week, they went to a village, they killed as many as they, as they could, and then they ran away. 
they don't have the ability so far to still hold territory. I don't think a surge will happen, especially given how weakened they are in Syria as well. Even with the attacks there, they cannot amass, you know, this force where they can actually attack and take over province after province. The United States, when it comes to at least Air Force, it's changed its tactics. In uh, 2014, the Obama Obama administration refused uh, to intervene at all in the early stages. And even as they were building up, and it was clear that they were building up on the border, there were no there were no attacks, no airstrikes. I think that has changed. Right now, we see airstrikes and drones in particular are quite the norm. So every time they would gather, there's, an, there's a drone a, a drone strike. That's not necessarily good news for locals because there's always civilian casualties in this. And just now we're becoming aware, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan, the sheer number of civilians that have died, it's probably higher than the numbers that ISIS would have killed. So putting things in perspective, there's no real gain here for Iraqis. That's the threat, basically. It's also... The fear of ISIS, I think, is more domestic in that ISIS is the one card that can really be used to stoke sectarianism. And this is something that at this point, many groups will definitely use to further their own political, their own political ambitions. That's the fear. That's the leverage that ISIS have. And they know this. They know that whenever they attack and they might be killing Shiites and they might be actually attacking um, militia and popular mobilization forces and killing many of their members. But at the same time, it's something that these that the, the zealots and, and, you know, people in the higher ranks of these groups, they actually want that because it's transactional. The more you attack, the more leverage we have, the more we get to incite against your people. The more we incite against your people, the more they turn to you. It's kind of like this, this cycle. That's the fear of, of ISIS more than them actually taking over a one third of Iraq again. The policy seems to be of a piece, Syria and Iraq, at least in, you know, from a counterterrorism point of view, which is, is more or less the sole Middle East policy if you strip away humanitarian aid and sort of the State Department's happy talk. But, you know, I, I, it's, it's a fascinating kind of landscape because right now, if you, the combined forces of American servicemen and women between Iraq and Syria is on parity, if not slightly more than what we were left with in the the end days of America's occupation of Afghanistan, right? And the optics there was, you know, even before we left, the guys we had spent 20 years fighting just, you know, circled the drain and took over the whole country. And I wonder if in Washington, there's this kind of dawning recognition, you know what, like, most Americans don't even realize that the president himself in that horrible interview with George Stephanopoulos didn't seem to think that we had any troops in Somalia and in Syria. Yeah. As long as it's not on the front page of the New York Times. And I mean, as you point out in Iraq, they're not engaged in active combat operations. And, you know, it's there mostly for liaison, intelligence sharing capability and being able to, you know, launch drones and aircraft from you know, Al-Assad Air Base and so on, that this is kind of a manageable thing and there's not going to be a precipitous withdrawal. I mean, we don't have to case the American flag again, a la 2010. I mean, is that kind of your sense of where things are headed, that there's going to be a, an almost indefinite status quo? Or is it, no, we're, we're, we're just going to get out because it's part of the end the forever wars mantra of this administration? I think eventually, I don't think it's going to be like, I don't think there's going to be a date, you know, let's say eight months from now. And as you mentioned, there's going to be like a ceremony and they're going to call it some big name, whether it's Iraq or Syria. Uh, I think forces might stay, they might decrease in numbers gradually. In Iraq, let's say 50 less every month, every other month, something like like that. There will always be a force in Iraq because of the ISIS threat. And I, I think that you, with the as long as the Iraqi security forces are also capable enough to thwart at least that, at least ISIS taking over 
huge territories. Um, I think the U.S. is good with that as well, but it will keep certain forces just for training. And um, the United States also understands that even the militias who attack the embassy also need this. They need this training. They need this intelligence. They need this information, even if there's no direct contact between the two. They do need the U.S. to help as well. And it's also within Iran's interest that ISIS is also completely defeated. So that's it's going to be a status quo. Um, I don't know how the escal- if there will be further escalation. Now, the resistant groups can always attack the embassy and uh, perhaps uh, that will make, you know, the front page of The New York Times. Then you will have public discontent here in the United States is why are why are we still in Iraq? Because I talked to some people here. They still think that 150,000 troops are there. They have not really moved on from 2003. They still call the U.S. presence today in Iraq an occupation and not knowing any of the nuances and the details. And it's exhausting. I think there's such an Iraq saturation and Iraq has such a bad rep that that's the image that people get. So that's the situation. And like you said, it's, it's manageable. It doesn't have to be breaking news all the time as long as there are efforts in Iraq by Americans. And there's some indirect contact with people who are in direct contact with the, with the militias to de-escalate when there is an escalation, as long as that's manageable. Yeah, things will pretty much stay the same. When there is need for an attack, like there's always, drones are always the option. And uh, yeah, that's going to be the status quo for, I assume, for at least five years. There's a, a potentiality of waking up one day in 2022, or not even sooner, and Assad is president of Syria, Maliki is prime minister of Iraq again. <laughs> And the Taliban are already in charge of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, this has been quite a 20 yeah. plus yeah. year journey in the so-called global war on terror, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has. And uh, it just kind of makes you wonder, you know, to quote CNC Music Factory, things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> I think that's the first time CNC Music Factory has been voted on the show. I, I love that you're yep. the person on it. Okay, well, I think you gave a very... Um, Excellent pricey of, of the situation in your in your homeland. And by the way, how are I know you had uh, just on a more serious note. I mean, you had yeah. family. I, I should have said this at the outset. I mean, you were, you were from the city that became, in effect, I mean, kind of the uh, not the capital, which was Raqqa, but the Iraqi the, uh, epicenter be, of ISIS. Right. It, be, and, it, it became yeah. the uh, the ISIS equivalent of Istanbul versus Ankara. Kind of. Yeah, well, very well said. <laughs> you had I mean, obviously your own personal familial connection to Mosul and your family there. I mean, is everybody okay in your, in your family? I mean, yeah. I mean, the people who have, who are financially capable of relocating to Kurdistan did that and basically started their lives over others who were not, they stayed in the city. So my extended family are all there. I have not seen them in nearly eight years, but they're all doing fine. I definitely lucky in a sense that uh, whether it's post, whether it's under Saddam's dictatorship or, whether it was under 2003's in, you know, U.S. invasion or afterwards, I didn't lose a family member to any of the wars. They all survived. I lost many friends, though, in different incidents. But um, those closest to me, they've, they're, they're okay. They're thriving. Life goes on. My youngest cousin recently got married. And uh, uh, it's just, uh, you know, the other one has three children now. And she was, when I left, she was still in school. So um, that's, uh, it's kind of endearing to hear that they're all doing well. They all graduated, except most of them are in the medical field. So they've done their families very proud. I'm very proud of them. Um, and I wish them nothing but, you know, at least normal, just a normal life. That's, uh, I think that's also their, their biggest ambition. And is, is Mosul recovering? Is it, is it being rebuilt or is it still got a long ways to do? 
there's still a long way to go. It's being mostly rebuilt by civil society, by aid organizations, um, not really by government money and uh, wealthy families that have contributed. And they're really changing the landscape and the, the identity of the city. This is a whole different podcast that can last for several hours, but it is changing. The mentality has also changed. It's, uh, it's quite, I had a friend recently who was, uh, was stayed in Iraq for several months and he said, Mosul is probably the safest city in Iraq right now. Um, so it's nice to see that at least, I think there's a level of normalcy going back. Um, at least uh, among young people, that's been good. I have not been back to Mosul and I hope to go someday soon. Yeah, I think things are slightly getting better. It's just a matter of how long they will stay normal and if they can improve even more. Well, Russia, it's it was great to finally do this at last. I know we've been putting it off for a long time, but you know, I, I actually like the idea of doing a podcast just about your hometown. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that you and your family lived through Saddam's totalitarian reign. You lived through American war and occupation. You lived through the whole AQI nightmare and then ISIS. I, I, the history of this city yeah. remains to be written, you know, both 20th and 21st century. But I, I would just love to devote an hour to talking about that, that experience. So we should do it next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Right. All right, Rasha. Well, um, we'll look for your report at New Lines, which is coming out, what, next week, you said? I mean, if next week or the week after, but it's, it details the elections. Great. Well, it's an important topic, and I'm glad we finally um, had a chance to talk about it. So you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. We'll see you next time. <laughs>